Today's scripture comes from 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 11. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we know that there is a battle going on for our attention and our thoughts and our longings. So God, I just pray now that you would come by your spirit and focus our minds on this text this morning. Father, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Show us, Lord, a bigger picture of of who you are and what you are doing, Lord, in this world. Not just now, but for all eternity. Lord, and so we, we, we need your help. Please transform us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my name is Daniel. If you are new or visiting, great to have you here this morning. We are actually in our second of three weeks spending time in our series that we have called Desiring Heaven. Now, I know uh, I'm a pastor, and so we think about these things way too much, but we have intentionally called the series Desiring Heaven and not just Heaven. And the reason for that is we don't just want to know about heaven. Heaven is not just this thing that we study and we get these facts and we write this test one day on the book of Revelation, hoping hoping we get it right. The hope is actually that this talking about heaven stirs our affection so that we long for it. Because we know that if we long for something, if we desire something, if we we crave it down to our bones, then that actually begins to influence the way we live here and now. Rebecca McLaughlin, she wrote an excellent book. Uh, It's called uh, Confronting Christianity. She basically raises these 12 major objections that the world has toward Christianity. And she begins her book by presenting two dreams. The first dream came from John Lennon. You know these words. He wrote, Imagine there is no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. 
See, what, what John Lennon is expressing there is actually a common objection raised toward Christianity, that Christians are so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. Christians are so heavenly-minded that they are of no earthly good. Basically, because we have our head up in the clouds, we're, we're not paying attention to, to the struggles and the things going on around us. Because well, why would we? We're, we're going to live for in heaven one day. So, so who cares about the environment? Who cares about the suffering and injustice in this world? Who cares in making this world a, a better place? That's how the objection goes. My question is, is he right? Uh, see, the other dream Rebecca begins with is that of Martin Luther King. Eight years before John Lennon penned these, those words, John, uh, Martin Luther said this, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that one day we will be free. I don't know if you know that this, but um, that section he gave in his speech, he didn't write down. That section wasn't in his notes. And the reason he said those things is because that's what came to mind when he was longing and craving and desiring a different place in this world. Those words, I have a dream today, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. That's the Bible. That's him quoting the Bible, and it's a section on heaven. See, King held heaven close to his heart, and that's what motivated him and inspired him to seek change in the world. He also said this another time, there are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. Eternally true, and so they're worth dying for. And I submit to you that if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. It's not imagining that heaven doesn't exist that stirs us up to live here and now differently. It's actually imagining and dreaming of and longing for the heaven that will come that changes us. So I have a very simple outline this morning. Life then, 
What can we expect from the heaven to come? And how does that heaven actually come about? And secondly, life now. How does the future realities of heaven impact our lives today? Firstly, life then. Life then. Look, look at your Bibles once more. P- pick it up in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may found or not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I think one of the reasons we struggle to understand how the future realities of heaven impacts us today is because even in our own minds, we are a little fuzzy about what we're discussing and describing when we talk about heaven, what, what I mean by the, this is this. Um, my, my grandpa passed away almost a year ago, almost exactly. And um, when thinking through, you know, what, what does that mean for, for grandpa? Well, because to the best of my understanding, he, he put his trust in Jesus. I would say that, well, grandpa is in heaven. But if you were here last week we learned that heaven is an embodied place. We, we have bodies in heaven. The problem is, is I saw my grandpa go into the ground. Like, like it was an open casket. I, I saw his flesh and bone go into the, the ground. And so what do I mean by heaven? I, I, think, um, I think the answer is this. Grandpa is in the present heaven, but the present heaven is not the forever heaven. What? There is a present heaven that is different than the forever and future heaven. See, what, what the Bible describes is this intermediate state, this intermediate heaven. If you're a Bible nerd, uh, you may know it as Abraham's bosom. I'm a Bible nerd, so I, I, know, I know that. But there is, this, there is this intermediate place. It's a temporary dwelling place where Christians go when they die. They are beside Jesus in this place, but they do not yet have their future resurrected bodies. Now, Paul actually, I think, alludes to this intermediate heaven. He says in verse 2 and 3, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, or in other words, not be found without a body. Or verse 4, For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, not that we would have no flesh, but that we would be further clothed. See, see, there's this, there's this tension going on here in Paul's mind. On one hand, he goes, I want to be in heaven. I want to escape the, the curse of, that's on this world and, and the agonies of this flesh. And, and I want to go and I want to be with Jesus. 
Look, look at what he says in verse 6. He says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we have good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So look, if it means that I have to die and I have to be without a body, that's okay because at least I'm with Jesus. But Paul says, look, but that's actually not really ultimately what I'm longing after. I want a body. I want a new resurrected body that enables me to once again enjoy the realities of this world. Ultimately, Paul's desire is for him to have a body with Jesus. Now just think about that just for a second. You can be with Jesus, the the creator of this world in all his splendor and glory. You can be in his presence and As amazing as that is, it still can get better than that. (laughs) You can be with Jesus, and yet it can get better than that because you can be with Jesus and have a body. See, See, having a body alongside of the presence of Jesus enables, actually, Paul thinks, to enjoy God even more than we presently can to taste food, to to smell the ocean breeze, to feel the pounding of our heart when we go for a run. Those are ways we experience and enjoy the greatness of our God. And that's ultimately what we long for. Uh, Randy Alcorn, in his book on heaven, gives us this helpful analogy in understanding the, the difference between this intermediate heaven and the forever heaven. He says, suppose you live in, well, he gives another place, but I'm going to use this. Suppose you live in hope, okay? They've never had a sunny day in their life. And you find out that there is this home, this wonderful home that you have inherited in Miami. It's this beautiful home. It comes with this incredible job, and actually all of your friends and loved ones are going to be there also. Well, in order to get from Hope to Miami, you have to travel through Toronto. Now, no one wants to be in Toronto. <laughs> Got some Toronto folk in the church this morning. No one wants to, no one wants to be in Toronto. When you're, when you're telling your friends where you're going, you don't, you don't fixate on Toronto. You fixate on Miami. But, but it turns out you, you get to Go to Toronto and you get to rejoin some of your other friends and family that are also on their way to Miami. Paul says, look, that Toronto is like the intermediate heaven. It's good in the sense that Jesus is there and we get to see our loved ones there, but that's not our ultimate end. We long for Miami. We long for resurrected bodies also in the presence of Jesus. This future heaven, the Bible also uses another word for it. It describes it as the new earth. The new earth. In the book of Revelation, we read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Listen to this. Coming down, those are important words, 
the new Jerusalem, the new heaven is coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. See, how does this new earth actually come about where we're told that the, the present heaven descends and as long as it collides with our present earth so that this earth is made new. It's a new earth. Now, I think it's helpful there to, to understand just the way language works. It's new as in the adjective and earth is the noun. See, see we as individuals, we are not longing for, and what happens is not that we just exit this world and wander off into some far-off, unimaginable place. One author says, look, if you actually want to know what the new earth and new heaven is like, don't close your eyes to imagine it. Open your eyes to imagine it. The new earth is this world transformed by God's presence coming down to be with us here. The earth is redeemed, it is renewed, it is restored or refurbished. And when that happens, all that is evil, all that is broken and messed up will be purified as though it has gone through a fire. And everything that is good, everything that honors God, everything that is true, actually still remains. The good things that we do here and now for the glory of God last on to the ends of eternity. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Last Battle, which is part of the Chronicles of Narnia series, he, he, he gives this illustration of what heaven will be like. You see, Lucy has begun to grieve. She, she's beginning to think that Narnia is passing away. And then she realized what she is seeing. So we read this. Those hills, said Lucy, the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia? Like, cried Edmund after a moment's silence. While they're exactly like. And yet, said Lucy, they're, they're different. They have more colors on them, and they look further away than I remembered, and they're more, more like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. The Narnia you're thinking of was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia, which has always been here and always will be here. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it's different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream. The new Narnia was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it to now. The reason why we love the old Narnia, the old earth, is that it sometimes looked a little like this. God has never relinquished his stake of ownership over this world, 
over this earth. Even in the flood, he decided not to do away with what he began. God will one day finish the good work he has planned for this earth. And so this earth and the new heaven will collide. That's what we long for. So then, what does this mean for our life now? Here, now, today, in the nitty-gritty of our lives, what does it mean? I, I think there's three things that uh, heaven does to affect us. It causes three changes. One, we live with courage. Two, we live to please. And thirdly, we live to persuade. Firstly, we live with courage. Look at verses 6 to 8 again. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What the new heaven, our future earth, does is it changes our perspective on suffering. We're going we're gonna to look at this more in-depthly next week. But one of the things you'll notice in the Bible is that when the authors discuss heaven, they normally do so to a bunch of people who are hurting badly or in danger of grave persecution. The whole book of Revelation was written to a number of churches that were going to experience great persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. And so what C.S. Lewis says, he says, look, if you want to balance life, if you, want, if you have a balance of life, you have to balance the, the scales of suffering with also the future heaven. You, you have to balance suffering with the reality of heaven and joy. It's the only way that this world makes sense. And so it's astonishing what I think Paul says here in verse 6. Paul says in verse 6, we are always of good courage. Always. Really? Paul, you? Look, if you just go a few chapters later in the book of 2 Corinthians, we read this in chapter 11. This is Paul talking about his life. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, and forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger at false brothers." in toils and in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Always, Paul? Always of good courage, really? And you go through that? How? How do you endure that? See, in Paul's mind, he understood that he didn't just go around, he doesn't just get to go around this earth once. And so his suffering was not his ultimate identity. He, he didn't 
ultimately get to miss out on the joys and pleasures of this world. He didn't have to spend every dying moment of his life seeking something that always was just a little bit out of reach for him. He didn't have to escape suffering because one day God would do that for him. If heaven is real, then pain is not our ultimate identity. Which means if, if you right now are suffering from a serious ailment, you're, you're going through serious mental health struggles, if you have been mistreated, if you have deep agony and sorrow, that's not ultimately who you are. It's not ultimately the end of it for you. And so as Christians, we don't have to live to escape our suffering. Instead, actually, we can enter into suffering if necessary, even death if necessary, if it means we get to serve others. And history shows that that's actually what happened. Uh, Rodney Stark was a sociologist and historian. And one of the things he describes is the different response that Christians had to a plague, to what the, the pagans did or the rest of the Roman Empire did to the plague that happened in the second century. See, there was a very serious plague in the second century in the Roman Empire, and, and they didn't know much about this illness, except that they knew that if you spent time with someone who was sick, you probably also were going to get sick. It was spread through contact. And so what did the rest of the city do? What did the unbeliever do? They left the city. They self-isolated. But, but the Christians, they remained in the city. They decided to care for their sick, care for their own family, and also to care for unbelievers. Rodney Stark gives the, these words. He describes it this way. Christians believed in life everlasting. At most, pagans believed in an unattractive existence in the underworld. Thus, for Galen, Galen is a doctor at that time who gives a historical account of what was going on. Thus, for Galen to have remained in Rome, he didn't. He left the city to treat the afflicted during the first great plague would have required far greater bravery than was needed by Christians. Bravery or courage to endure suffering, even death for the sake of others because of future joy. That's what heaven does for us. Paul said, look, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then of course we are most to be pitied. Why would I go through suffering? Why would I be okay with suffering and pain? But if Christ is raised from the dead, and I will be raised from the dead, and if this world will experience a resurrection of sorts, then pain need not be ultimate, but instead our servant in showing others who Jesus is. Secondly, we live not only with courage, we live to please. We live to please. Look at verses 9 and 10. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Heaven doesn't just redeem our sufferings, it also redeems our day-to-day interactions and actions. See, what, what Paul says here is that all, verse 10, all people will one day appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And because of that, it changes the way he wants to live. It motivates Paul to please God or to live a life of obedience. See, see, Paul wants to fight sin because he knows that one day he'll be with Jesus who has saved him from those sins, who has called them to live life of purity and, and holiness. Alcorn just gives the example also of, of looking forward to our wedding day. Now, I remember in my, my own life that, that moment I proposed to my wife, Stephanie, and just having that date, our, our wedding day on, on the calendar, and the work that God did because of that to, to mature me, to make me a better man, to, to get me ready for that day. I, I was no longer, or at least it helped me to no longer struggle with lust and, and seduction. It, it purified me. I wanted to be better for my wife. I, want, I wanted to be holy and pure for, for her. Heaven, heaven does that for us. It helps us fight our sin here and now. But, but more than that, it's not just Jesus we will await, Paul says. We also await rewards. See, see, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due. That's a reward. A reward for what he has done in the body, whether good, reward, or evil, will burn away. See, when we resist sin, Paul's saying, we're only resisting temporary pleasures. We're only, we're only turning down satisfactions that are of lesser degrees. Ultimately, there is a greater reward that is coming our way in heaven. And so Paul says, look, when you are tempted to sin, let your mind wander up to Jesus. Let your mind wander to heaven. Think about what is to come, who is there, and what he holds in his hand awaiting to give you. If I'm honest, um, I had a hard time writing the sermon this week. I just, I just don't think I've thought about heaven enough. And as I'm writing this, this, this sermon, I'm just having all these desires of, of future. Like when I think of future, I think of kids out of the house. Or at least let's start with kids out of diapers. I, I think of double income. I think of retirement. Like that, that, that picture of golfing from your 60s onward, that's actually what I want. I just want to golf. And look, those aren't ultimately bad things, but they are bad things if they're ultimate. Right, like if, if that's ultimately what I'm longing for, how far short 
am I aiming? Like just to, just reflecting on this text this week and the ways my small picture of, of my future influences the day to day life that I have, the interactions I engage in, the way I use my money and my, my time. I read these words again by C.S. Lewis, and I found them so convicting. He's describing this little mouse that is, that is seeking Aslan, the great lion's country. He's painting a picture of what we should do seeking Jesus' country. And, and he gets, says this, this little, this little mouse. While I can sail east, he, he's heading toward the land in the dawn treader, this great boat. While I can, I sail east in the dawn treader. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle, this little wood round boat. When she sinks, I'll swim east with my forepaws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of this world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise. I want to live like that. Like doing whatever I can to get to heaven to be with Jesus, to, to get the reward that he's waiting to give me. I need to follow the beam of light, C.S. Lewis says, all the way up to the source. Because ultimately, when I get to the source, that I find true satisfaction. So I want to please him. Lastly, we live with courage, we live to please, please and thirdly, we live to persuade. Look at verses 10 and 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul says, all individuals will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But that judgment will not look the same for everyone. For Christians, for those who have put their faith in Jesus and have sought to please him, they will receive a judgment of what type of reward they will be given in this new earth. But for those who have not sought to please God, because, let's just be honest, why would they? They don't believe God's done anything for them. They haven't put their hope in what Jesus has done. So I'm just, just speaking plainly. They, they haven't lived to, to please God. Pa Paul says, look, they also stand before the judgment seat, though. But their judgment is one of guilt and condemnation. Um, Paul is honest here. He's blunt and he's clear. He says judgment will not be withheld. And every one of our deeds will be laid bare before Jesus, and he'll pronounce us guilty. We have not lived up to, Paul says, to, to the standards that are God's. We have not lived up to God's glory. And, and we know that. Look, if, if, we, if we just, uh, if we had a recorder, one pastor puts it this way, if we had a recorder tied around our neck, and every time we said the words, you ought you ought to do this, it began to record us, we know we haven't lived up to our own expectations, our own oughts, never mind the Lord's. We're guilty based on our own standards. And so Paul says, look, we'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, 
And he says in verse 11, that will be a fearful day. It'll be fearful. The holiness and the perfectness of God in all his glory, who demands perfection, will pour out his wrath on those who have not put their faith in him. And they'll be cast away from his goodness for forever and ever. The Bible calls that hell. And because we believe this, because we believe in heaven and in hell, we persuade others, Paul says. We plead with them to turn to him. Turn to Jesus and we share the gospel of Jesus with them. We call others to respond. Heaven is not our default destination. Heaven is not the default destination of this world. Hell is. And so, like Richard Baxter, we tell them, look, sitting still will lose you heaven as well as you if, if you run from it. Sitting still or running away, you still miss out. And so we persuade them. John Patton, I've probably given this example before, uh, but I'll give it again. Also, Jake is in kids' ministry, so taste of his own medicine today. Going a little long here. John Patton was a missionary to what is modern-day island of Vanuatu. Uh, he saw this island as being in desperate need of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus. The problem is, is the people who lived on this island were cannibals. And they had killed the last missionary who was sent there before they could get off the beach. And yet he feels called to go to persuade them, but there's many around whom, who are actually persuading him then not to go. You'll die. They'll kill you, they told them. You'll be, you'll be eaten alive. Think of your wife. Think of your kids. And this is his response. Mr. Dixon, oh, Mr. Dixon, going down in history. Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it'll make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. And in the great day, why does he go? And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Now look, we may not feel this risk, this danger of being eaten alive, but that doesn't mean we don't fear. I know we do. I, I, I feel it. Preaching the gospel up here is the easiest thing I'll do. In the day-to-day -day life, with my neighbors, with my friends, that's hard. And there's this fear in us. Fear to be outcast. Fear to be mocked. Fear to be called names. People just thinking you're stupid. And we fear that. But look, if my ultimate identity is not determined by what others think of me, and if heaven and hell really are real, then it's worth the fear to persuade Atheist magician Pendulette, I think he puts it really well. Someone was trying to evangelize to him, and they knew he was a, uh, an atheist. And Gillette said this, If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? 
How much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and to not tell them that? This is an atheist talking. If you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that a truck was bearing down on you, and there's a certain point where I tackle you. And he says, and this is more important than that. If we really believe in heaven and hell, then we persuade others. That's where they're going. So we call them to Jesus. And so maybe you're here in this room right now, and you feel the work of the Lord on your heart. You feel this understanding in your heart that, yes, I actually get it. I do think I would be judged guilty for what I've done in this world, then don't let this moment pass you by. Please, let me persuade with you. Turn to Jesus. Put your hope in him. We put our hope in what the Bible calls the gospel. Let me, let me explain to you this gospel or this good news using terms that our text uses. God, this is why, this is why we trust in Jesus, because God, the indestructible one actually became a tent. The reverse thing happened here. Um, John 1 says that God became a man and he tented among us. It's literally what it says. And his name is Jesus. Jesus left his glorious throne and he lived a life totally, perfectly pleasing to God. He pleased him in all he did. And yet they killed him. They crucified him. Why? Because he tried to persuade them. But he died. And in his death, he received actually the judgment of God. Jesus received the judgment that we deserve to have paid, not because Jesus had done anything wrong, but because he took our sin and our guilt upon himself. And in that moment, he endured the wrath of God. But he didn't stay dead, the Bible says. Three days later, he, he rose from the ground. The Bible calls this the, the first fruits or, or the guarantee. Because, and we, we have this guarantee that we too will rise because God gives us the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Because of that spirit in us, we know that when we die, when Christ returns, we also shall rise from the dead. And so if you believe this, then trust in him. Turn from your former ways of denying him, of rejecting God, and instead live your life now to please him. So let me end. I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis one more time. He says this. This is the last line from the last book of the series of Narnia. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as Aslan, the Jesus figure, spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. We long to begin chapter one of the great story that gets better and better and better. But if that story really is as good as we are told it will one day be, then right now, 
we seek to draw the most beautiful cover page and we write the most incredible picture. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we confess that often we do not think about heaven as much as we ought to. God, we have become fixated on the things of this world and heaven is like this insurance policy that is nice to have in our back pocket in case, well, something happens down the road. But Lord, we, we want that to change. We, we want the future realities of heaven to impact us here and now. Lord, help us to live holy lives that please you, courageous lives, Lord, that enable us to endure suffering for a greater good, and persuading lives, Lord, where we go out to the ends of this world, or to Tanzania, to share the good news of Jesus, who came, who died, who rose, and who will come again. We pray this in his name. Amen.